Welcome to the Spiritually Minded Women podcast. If you're a woman who is ready and willing to be a follower of Jesus, you're in the right place. Join me as we dive in deep to learn how to embrace your journey on the covenant path with checkpoints instead of checklists. I'm your host, Darla Trindler, and I'm cheering you on. Welcome to your journey. Welcome to the Spiritually Minded Women podcast. This is Darla. Thank you for joining me today. We are talking this season all about how you can embrace your journey on the covenant path. And I really wanted to open it up and have other people come on the podcast and share what their journey has looked like. And so today I have a guest for you. Her name is Karen Kramer, and I am so excited to have her on and for you to hear some of her experiences. So Karen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. I have to introduce myself, I guess. My name is Karen Payne Kramer, and I'm 60 years old Last in December, <laughs> and I keep thinking, how did I get here? Holy crap, 60 years old is old. <laughs> anyway, I have a bunch of kids. Okay, these are the type of kids I have. I have birth children. I have adopted children. I have foster children. I have stepchildren. I have in-laws, like children-in-laws. And I have grandchildren. So I don't think Disney has created a mom that I'm not. So you've got I, everything covered there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and each one of them has their own specific little story. But anyway, and I'm also a lifetime member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this is my affirmation I say every morning that has helped me on my journey. I am lean. I am strong. I am healthy. I am happy. I am free. I'm a Viking warrior princess, and I am unstoppable. And those affirmations have helped me heal and move forward from the four Ds of the modern apocalypse, which are disease, death, divorce, and debt. And I've gone through all of them at least once, some of them twice or three times. So <laughs> I've had more than my fair share, I think, sometimes. But that's okay. My best friends often say, you've always been an overachiever. And I think if we chose our trials in heaven, every trial that came up, you'd say, I'll do that. I'll take that one and that one and that one. And so one of my really good friends says, I don't feel sorry for you because you probably brought it on yourself. <laughs> well, Karen, you really have experienced a lot in your life. And I, I'm grateful that you would come on and, and be willing to share, you know, just parts of that. And I know that, that your story is going to bring hope. And I love that you consider yourself a Viking. You told me earlier that you were a descendant of Scandinavian ancestors. You have that strength and that power. So I'm really excited to dive into this and hear more of what you can share and teach us. So I know one of the things that you told me, you got married when you were 19, you got married in the temple and you thought you were going to have this happy ever after. And then 25 years later, your marriage ended. So can you tell me a little bit about that? And, you know, maybe some of the things that happened before that, what was going on? Well, I can tell you the, I knew the moment my marriage had ended and I was on my way. I was staying overnight at my brother-in-law's house and I was on my way to visit my husband who was in a psychiatric jail at that point. And I had received a, a, a blessing from my stake president and from my brother-in-law. And I woke up in the morning with one word that just kept playing over and over and over in my head. And it was euthanasia, 
which basically is mercy killing. And I was trying desperately to keep my marriage alive. And the, the message was, it's dead. It needs, you need to mercy kill it. So I went for marriage counseling <laughs> in the psychiatric prison hospital. And my husband at the time, they asked him how he saw our life going forward. And he said, at, I'll never forget, he said, anything that goes wrong from here on in will be my fault. I will never have a moment's peace. She will never forgive me. And I will spend the rest of my life paying for what I've done. And the marriage counselor looked at me and said, where do you see your life, your marriage going? And I said, it's obviously not. So I want a divorce. And at that point, my husband at the time was aghast and in shock that I would ask for a divorce. And it's a testament to how determined I was because I told him that as long as it didn't negatively affect our family, I would do my best to keep the family together. And what had happened was we adopted a little girl out of the foster care system when she was seven. And then a couple of years later, we adopted two more girls that were sisters at the ages of eight and 11. And my husband was a teacher and I'm a teacher. And so we were very well known in our small little town of like 4,000 people. And my, the oldest or the gal that we first adopted was very precocious and very affectionate. Anyway, long story short, she tried to tell me and I didn't uh, listen because it didn't make sense to me. And she kept telling me that somebody was coming into her room and was touching her private parts. And I looked into a lot of different theories because she had come from a rather chaotic background. And as you get older, sometimes you will have retro dreams about things. And so I just kind of dismissed it as that. And then the next two girls that we adopted, one of them suddenly became very sullen and would talk to me at school and was in my classes at school. But as soon as I got home, she was angry and went to her room, wouldn't talk. And I, I couldn't figure it out because happy ever after married to the elders quorum president didn't, you, you, you don't even put those things together. And so on my birthday, I remember <laughs> I was, they, the social services and the police came to the school and asked if they could speak to me. And I spent four hours with them as they uh, grilled me on these, all these things. And I was in shock. I, I kept saying, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and then I, I went home and I just went to lay down in the bedroom. And my daughter that had just come home off a mission came into the bedroom and said, what's the matter, mom? And I said, oh, I'm just really tired. And so my husband came in and he said, what's, what's going on? So I told him what had happened. And he looked at me and he said, oh, okay. Which I thought was an odd sort of reaction. And my oldest daughter brought me some soup and I had a little bit of soup and I went to sleep because I was so exhausted. The next morning when I got up, my husband at the time was up at before seven o'clock and I went into the living room and he was reading the scriptures, which was, no, that wasn't something he did. 
he read the scriptures with us as a family at night and then we had our family prayer but reading on his own wasn't a normal habit that he had and i said what's going on and he was reading the scripture of the millstone around a man's neck i i wish i could quote it verbatim but and then he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said it's true and i was just in shock i was like what and so then he he said it again and this is a week before Christmas. And long story short, we made it, I made it through Christmas. We went to disciplinary church court. And then he went to court court and got, he pled, he pled guilty and he got sentenced. And he was uh, sentenced to four years and he served two and a half. And in the two and a half years that he served, my son that saw his dad as his hero went reckless after all this came out and he ended up dying of an accidental drug and alcohol overdose and so my sister got married in july my son died the week later we had a funeral the week after that two weeks later my daughter got married a week later my mom died and then a week later we had a funeral for her so in the period of eight weeks i had two weddings and two funerals. I felt like I was like a bad comedy rom-com mm -hmm. or something, yeah. but it was heartbreaking. And so after that is when I asked for a divorce because obviously it had affected my family and I ended up losing a son over it. So that was the, the hardest part of my life because I, I lost my marriage. I lost what I saw as my future. I lost my son. I lost my mom. We had to declare bankruptcy and my health was, I was on the edge of cortisone or cortisol all the time. I couldn't sleep at night. I was waiting for the next shoe to drop because I was sure there was going to, something else fell apart. And sure enough, I had other daughters that tried to commit suicide and were in the hospitals off and on. I think, I, I think we had three or four suicide attempts by different members of, of my ch children. And it was chaos. And at the whole time, I'm teaching at school and pretending like nothing's going on because I teach my children in junior high and all their friends are in my classes. So I have yeah. to act like nothing's happening to keep but, them but safe. But you said it was a small town. So did people know what was going on? And um, he went to jail at the end of April, and there were some in May that knew, and I, I can't really comment on how many knew, but I just know that the people of the ward fit into three categories. Category one, my trials were too hard for them to bear because they saw me and it made them cry and they couldn't, they couldn't talk to me because it was too hard for them which I get, it, it was hard. And the other group were people that had been sexually abused themselves could not look at me because everything that I, they saw in me was reflected in their experience. The pain that I wore my, I'm, I'm really um, an open book when you want to know what emotion I'm feeling, it's all over my face. So I had to develop that ability to just mask and it took a while. And then the third were the, the disciples that would just take me under their wing 
And thank goodness there was a, a good portion of those as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to this point where you tell your husband he is in jail. You've been through all of these things and you tell him that you want a divorce. What happened after that? I got a divorce <laughs> six weeks later. Amazingly, it was it was rather quick because I'd already been separated and they had in Canada, you have to be separated a year before you can apply. But because he had been in jail, they waived that. And anyway, they, and I had been separated from him for two and a half years because he'd been in, in jail. And anyway, so I had emotionally separated myself from him because as, and I read a book, Codependent No More, because I had become so codependent by taking over everything in the marriage and everything as a parent. And I was just doing everything because he abdicated so much right down to he took a stress and sick leave and I did all his lesson planning for him on top of my lesson planning. It was like crazy. I was really crazy, but I was, I guess I was just trying desperately to hold everything together. Yeah. So I got uh, divorced and then I also have adult ADHD and I've had ADHD my whole life, even as a child, which explains why my mom always told me that you have to go away and quit talking to me. <laughs> my mom was a lovely, she was a psych nurse actually. So she should have, <laughs> she should have recognized that this daughter of hers was just intense, which I'm sure she did. I wouldn't let her alone, but I have always been very driven while I just, after my son passed away, I decided to take my master's at school. So I started a master's program a month after my son passed away, which tells you kind of how crazy I am. But I needed something to really focus on, and I'm good at school. So I decided that would be a good distractor. And then I decided that I told my best friend, by this time next year, I'm going to be married. I'm not going to spend burn daylight and spend the rest of my life waiting for a happy ever after. I'm getting my happy ever after. Thank you very much. <laughs> Which I always tease my husband. I picked him out of a Sears catalog, but it wasn't, it was LDS Mingles or something. And he happened to be in the same town I'm in. And we met up and took our kids to Dollar Cinemas as our first date. And we dated for another six months and then got engaged. And by that time next year, I was, I was married. And he's been a really good man. We've had our ups and downs because. If you want to take the first five years of marriage and put it into five months, that's kind mm -hmm. of the, the speed it, it kind of went emotionally. And his uh, baggage from his ex-wife was huge. So we both had this huge amount of baggage that we had to learn how to shed together and then come together. And uh, it took a couple of years, but not I, I wouldn't say we're happy ever after because I know now that that's just, that's not always the truth. You make your happy every day and you hope that you can make it last ever after. Yeah. Between the two of you putting the point. work first. Good point. So I would be curious to know, as you look back on all of these things that you've experienced, like Karen, I think you've experienced more than most people ever do in a lifetime, you know, already. What are some of the lessons that you feel like you've learned from the things that you've gone through? Well, the next thing I wanted to mention was I had a second son that passed away as well. 
And he was a severe arthritic and has colitis. I also have another daughter that has arthritis and she's pretty severe too. They've had knuckle replacements and joint fusions and, and my mom has that as well or had that. We lost him just two years or three years after we lost his brother. And he was, his brother was using my son's pain pills in conjunction with alcohol. And he didn't realize that it was going to be as catastrophic as it was. And so my second son had such severe feelings of guilt. He felt like he had caused his older brother to die. And I'm getting to the point here, I promise. The most destructive emotion is shame. And I learned that as a parent or as a person on the planet, anything with shame as the intention behind it is going to destroy the person you're, you're working with. So if you ever use shame-based parenting or if you are using shame in your marriage to make somebody feel bad, it's going to destroy them and destroy them spiritually. And so I, that was one of the big lessons for me. Another lesson was I read a, well, actually somebody gave me a talk, just left it on the seat of my, of my van at church. And it was called Family Crucibles. It was by Jeff Hill in a BYU address education talk. And he talked about the family crucibles that can destroy a family or bring them together. And there was 26 of them or something. And I'd had like 20 of them. It's mm. ridiculous. But he talked about how I can do hard things is one lesson. And the second one is there are tender mercies every day and you have to look for them. And the third one is things take time. And so those three things have been over and over again. I can do hard things when you're picking out caskets and doing your son's hair and shaving your other son's face so he looks nice for the funeral. I can do hard things. And there are tender mercies every day. You just have to look for them. And sometimes they don't seem like a tender mercy. Sometimes they seem like a trial. But if you flip them around and look at them from the Savior's point of view, they're actually a tender mercy because they're helping you grow. And things take time. You can't speed up. You can speed up healing by focusing on the Savior, but you can't speed up chaos. It has to settle. And my brother-in-law said, truth is like a driftwood in a raging river. It, it gets swallowed up sometimes and it gets kicked out, but eventually it'll come up onto the beach and it'll be there for all to see what the truth is. So you don't focus on telling your story or telling the truth as you see it. Things take time and eventually the truth will be there. You don't have to push the truth or the story because uh, if I wanted to be a victim, oh, and that's the big one. No victim. I'm not a victim and I will get better. I will not get better because victim is poison. If you ever feel like you're a victim or want to be a victim or treated like a victim, it made me physically ill because everybody's like, oh, poor Karen. No, no, no. Uh-uh. No victim. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things that you had mentioned when you applied to be on the podcast, something that really struck me was that you said that you have learned the power of forgiveness and seeing my ex-husband through the eyes of the Savior. Oh, forgiving that? him has been a process. Yeah. It, it's not something you do once. It's not a once yeah. and done. Right. No. Yeah. What does that look like for you to forgive your, your ex-husband and to well, lean on the savior? 
Yeah, he wasn't totally wrong when he said everything that went wrong after that was going to be his fault because there's been a I'm lot sure. that has gone wrong and his his actions have, of course, contributed to it. But that's his cross to bear. That's not mine. I don't have the right to judge, nor do they have the authority, nor do I have the stewardship to judge. It's not my job. And thank goodness it isn't because I would be a poor judge sometimes because the emotion can take over from you. And there has been times when I have been indignant and uh, angry and just so many things. And I read this quote, and there's two quotes. Number one is the largest source of anger is unmet expectation. I had a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I had all kinds of expectations that were, yeah, worse than unmet. And another scripture or another, it was in a conference talk, or I don't know if it's conference talk, is it August? An August enzyme somewhere. So it says the heart yeah. cannot feel true uh, joy until it has been hollowed out by sorrow. And so that one has be really been my my motto is that everything that's happening, I have joy on the other end. The sorrow is going to be there, of course, and the depth of the sorrow also equals the depth of the joy. But when it came to my ex-husband and still still happening. I had to turn it over to the Savior and just say, and Heavenly Father and say, he's your child and you know what he needs and you know, you know him inside and out. I don't. And I will leave it to you and just give me a glimpse of what you see in, through your eyes so that I can let it go. And I got the glimpse and I was able to see him without all the stuff that he'd added on himself, all the chains he'd added on himself. And I got to sort of see him unfettered. And I believe he's a lovely soul and a kind man and a good man that got caught up in the chains of pornography and addiction. And that's where the bottom of it lies, is in pornography. That's where it uh, started with him at age 12. Wow. So obviously, He'd been fighting something for a very long time that largely stays quiet in our church because it's the hidden sin. You don't have to, and it's so available, and you don't have to have any signs. But my, my daughter that came home after mission, when she got home, she said to me, she looked at me, and she goes, what is the matter with dad? I said, I, I don't know. I ask him all the time. And she's like, he's a deadhead, which was our expression for we use it in conjunction with being gamers, where you lose the spirit and mm -hmm. you just become that zombie. And she's like, he's really a deadhead. I said, I know. And he had a dark look about his face and just really, if you could imagine what an evil presence on the face of someone good looks like, that's, that's what he looked like. And so it was, I had to take that evil off and look at the good, look at the good underneath. And realize the Lord and our Heavenly Father both have a plan for his life as well. And that there's still time left for him to do what he needs to do. I think that is a really important message. And kind of what I'm hearing from hearing you talk about this is that that forgiveness was not like a one-time thing. It's a process. It, it takes time, like you said before. But I think it's remarkable that you're able to, to look at him and see him as the Savior sees him. Well, I hope I can see a little a little glimpse of him anyway. I don't know right. that I can see him totally, but I'm trying. Right. And I think I think that's that's a, a really good clue for all of us to look at other people and 
to be able to pull back. I, I really like the imagery that you use, you know, to pull that back and to see their soul and who they really are. I think that must have been just so difficult for you, but it sounds like the Savior was really there for you. It's interesting because as I was growing up, I was a good kid. Like I did all the right things and graduated seminary and I never did anything wrong, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I was just a straight arrow kind of kid, even though I was rambunctious and a little loud and kind of obnoxious, but I didn't really ever feel like I needed to use the Savior's atonement. And that just shows my spiritual immaturity as I felt like, oh, I got this. I'm good. Yeah. But as I was going through my trial, I got to know the depth of the um, Savior's gift to us. And I read The Infinite Atonement, which is a beautiful book. He heals our souls when we are broken and we are hurting and we are because he's been through everything that we've been through, that we're going through. And so it's not just for repentance, it's also for binding up the wounds of those that are broken. And I felt very much supported in being broken by the Savior, where I'd never used the atonement like I did, like I was needing to after my trial. And I had to learn how to forgive a lot of people. There was just a lot of people that made judgments and said really not kind things and mm -hmm. family members that couldn't um, support me. And it was just, it was a really rough time because for whatever reasons they had, like I said, my trial was too hard for them. And I probably didn't bear it very well. And I probably was a walking wreck that people crossed the street because they could see how much pain I was in. Yeah. So I, I'm not blaming them at all. I, I find myself from time to time when I see somebody going through a lot, wondering if I have the capabilities to support them. And I, I can always find them. But for people that haven't been through uh, extreme trials, it's, it's hard. It's hard to not put your own frailties in front of that. And I think that that's part of walking the covenant path is learning how to help other people that are beside you. We all make mistakes. And so it's good to have people that will forgive us and help us to learn and grow. And I, I can see that in your story of how you've learned to be able to do that and to be able to help other people. And growing um, is painful. Yes, it growing is. Growing is very painful. Yes. It's, uh, my son in grade nine went through three shoe sizes in three months. So I kept buying him these basketball shoes. I buy him a set of basketball shoes. Two weeks later, he's saying, mom, my toes are bleeding. And I'd be like, they can't be bleeding. I just bought them for you. Two weeks later, mom, my toes are bleeding. He went from like a size eight to a size 11 in like three months. It was ridiculous. Wow. But growing quickly is that same sort of pain because you have to leave something behind. You have to decide what you're going to give up so you can grow. And it, it forces you to make a decision about the gospel. And I remember going to church was the hardest part of my life. I would go and I would sit behind people and a husband would put his arm around his wife and it would just choke me to the core. And it was the hardest part of my life. And for a long time, it really was. And I just kept going anyway. <laughs> I had a state president that said to me, sister, you have so many trials. I have people that have way less than you that have quit coming to church. Why do you keep coming? And I'm like, 
damn pioneer stock, I guess, <laughs> which is more determined than smart. It's, it's in your blood. What would you say to someone who is maybe in a situation like yours and they don't want to come? You know, what kept you going? What would you say to that person to keep coming? I had a covenant. I had made a covenant and my promises are very important to me. And I'm not judging people who don't go because I, I truly understand the pain that happens for some people and how they can't face their pain in churches where they have to face it. And I, I understand that that's bitter and hard and heartbreaking. My covenants mean a lot to me and they kept me going when my willpower was gone. And I had kids in junior high at home and I didn't want to set that example for them. I wanted them to see their mom get up and go to church, even though she's in pain and even though things are hard. I didn't want them to ever see that I had made an excuse for not going. I love that answer, that covenants is what kept you coming. And there's power in those covenants. And I can see that in your story for sure. Well, Karen, this has been so great. I appreciate that you would share your experiences. And I know that there will be someone out there that will relate to them and that you will bring them some hope and some light in their life. But I do have one final question for you. And that is... How have you seen and felt the Savior in your journey on the covenant path? He's ahead of me, forging the path. He's beside me, holding my hand. He's behind me, catching me when I fall. Whenever I, I need him, he's either ahead of me, beside me, or behind me. He's always there. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And I do want to point people to you if, if they want to learn more about you and what you share. I know you told me before that you have a group on Facebook where you help people who are dealing with loss. Where could people go and find you if, if they would like to learn more? Well, it's just anybody who has experienced loss of a loved one. And that's called Resilient Warriors because we are all warriors. And resilience is a, it's a life skill that we need to learn to manage through extreme stress. So it's under Resilient Warriors on Facebook, or you can just come and chat with me, Karen Payne Kramer. We can link that up, your Facebook group up in the show notes as well, so they can go there to find it. Karen, thank you so much for being here and for being willing to share part of your journey on the covenant path. Well, thank you for uh, giving me a little bit of a platform. I just, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to tell my story. And I really hope it helps somebody and gives them the support they need in a difficult time. I know that it will. Thank you. Here are this week's journal questions. When I ask Karen the question, I ask every guest at the end, how have you seen and felt the Savior in your journey on the covenant path? She replied by saying, he's ahead of me forging the path. He's beside me holding my hand. He's behind me catching me when I fall. Whenever I need him, He's either ahead of me, beside me, or behind me. Think about Karen's words describing her experience. How has the Savior been there for you? Think about and journal your responses to these questions. When has Jesus been ahead of you, forging the path? When has Jesus been beside you, holding your hand? 
When has Jesus been behind you, catching your fall? I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and if you did, please share it with a friend. I would love it if you would leave a review and rate it on Apple Podcasts. This actually helps more women find the podcast and embrace their own journey on the covenant path. To find more ways to be a part of the Spiritually Minded Women community, head over to spirituallymindedwomen.com. For more inspiration, follow along on Instagram, at spirituallymindedwomen. Have an amazing day. I'm cheering you on in your journey.